Greetings, Earthlings. It's time to penetrate your skull for the acts of coitus with the gravity level of fecal matter. Or in other words, it's time to skull fuck the shit out of you. I'm Curry, the Indian Spice. My co-host is the Smith's Grow Sanitarium's head of basement file archives, Henrik. Welcome back. yep Oh wait, yeah, that was the wrong fucking franchise. Sorry. <laughs> We're not there yet. But hey... Uh, will be nice to kind of lift the mood up after all these horrible, awful killings, especially what we're going to have here, because it's starting to get really brutal out here. How are you feeling out there in the Finnish winter storm, or how is it now? <laughs> it's not quite yet the winter storm. Mm. We are at the, I would say, this is the middle spring we are having. Which means that the temperature is dropping like crazy and we're just waiting for the real coldness to sneak in. Here in back in lovely old Poland, we are having a sort of a heat wave. We can talk of such because it's uh, now on the fall side and we have 28 Celsius degrees. I'm not complaining, I'm just sweating. Henrik, what is your experience with... Rob Zombie. Never listened that much of his music. I've only checked a couple of his albums while he was kind of the big name. Mostly what I've listened to Zombie's just Hellbilly Deluxe album. And even from there, only a couple of songs. The well most known, like Dragula and uh, Super Monster Sex Action. Okay. Movie-wise, I've checked House of Thousand Corpses, which was my introduction. Me too. To zombies. Yeah, to zombies filmmaking. I'm still being a complete horror movie heretic here and have not checked Devil's Rejects, but I did go uh, through and watch the... What was the Satan Witchcraft film? Lords of Salem. Exactly that. But other than that, I'm only seen the two Halloween films he made. I've yet to see the 31, which is his latest. And, well, Werewolf Woman of the Assas never got a movie version of itself. It, there exists only the Fox trailer. Yeah, I've seen uh, The Thousand Corpses, and I've seen Halloween, and obviously Halloween too. I have to say that after seeing Halloween and Corpses, I didn't care to see the rest of it. I just am not impressed by his cinematography, his style of speaking to the audience. All that hillbilly and all that stuff. He He's making a, more of a music video than like a horror movie in the classical sense. He's making extremely cinematic exploitation film, which mm. he has managed to gather a several million dollar budget instead of, you know, just 
filming it for with uh, 50 bucks like it was done back in the day yeah i quite like his outings what i've seen okay. that being the house of thousand corpses and the lords of salem yeah maybe it's just because i've never been a fan of zombie movies so call me a heretic call me a zombie but i don't like zombie movies you you haven't been fan of zombie movies or zombies movies because a zombie has never made a zombie movie which is quite funny when you actually think about the situation yeah rob zombie interesting choice definitely was like a pop phenomenon at the time also is is a man who you maybe actually should try to get or someone on that way if you are trying to do a remake because Rob Zombie or a director like him would be someone who actually would bring something new to the table which is kind of a important when you are making a remake and not just another sequel because nobody would like to have a remake that just tries to copy the original film yeah. you can always yeah you know if you are one of those persons who just wants to see the original simply being remade there's gosman sands psycho yeah movie. yeah right yeah psycho is a good example I will give Rob Zombie that, yes, if you're going to do a remake, you should do something that is not a complete repetition of what's been done in the past. I guess you can already tell from my comments already where I'm kind of gonna go with this movie. I'm sensing a lot of love. And flowers. Especially flowers from your part. Well, if we start to play the movie... We start with white trash and foul language, much foul language. This is the first thing that I paid attention. The first thing you notice is the foul language and there is so much of that. And uh, I understand that Rob Zombie is kind of known for his foul language in his films. And he likes the white trash as well. Well... He's a guy who made an album called Hillbilly Deluxe. Yeah. Uh, kind, of, kind of speaks for itself. Yeah. How, how cliche is that? Was it really Hellbilly or Hillbilly? If I remember correctly, it was Hillbilly. Hillbilly. Deluxe, okay. the, the album. Although I have to confess that it's now been four years since I've last listened to it. So I'm not completely sure here. Yeah. So I had a lot of trouble from the get-go to like this film because the language is so cruel that it's just very hard to listen to. And it's not really even a kind of a dialogue that I would be interested in listening to or something that would be having some kind of an artistic merit, in my opinion. Especially in the later scenes when we start the actual kind of a caricature jokish parodish remake of halloween when we see laurie strode walking down the street and seeing tommy and or is it before that when we anyway there is this uh, group of three girls once again like it was in the original yes and the language is just horrible 
I just want to get past that scene. <laughs> That's my impression. Uh, to me, it was not so much the language in that scene as it was the body language. Also, oh my God. Like more than the full language being spoken by, well, everyone in this goddamn film, the body language exhibited by were the three main girls of the film was really the hardest part for me to take in while watching this. It was the first time when I originally saw this film and still is today. Yes, there there is something very unlikable about the body language as well of Scott Taylor Compton's Laurie Strode. I would and say it's the extreme over-sexualization that is going on in a lot of their interactions with other characters. Yeah, they have definitely taken a different road with that because Laurie Strode is not at all the same character that it used to be. It's not this innocent girl, this little very, very, yeah, smart girl, lots of books, good head. This is like the antithesis of the original Laurie Strode. But by doing that, it's different and at the same time it's like a parody. I wouldn't go as far as call it a parody, even though I do admit that she is extremely different. When it comes to her smarts and how well she's doing at school, it's never kind of a... It's never exhibited in this film. Well, Laurie Strode is depicted here as a slut. I, I wouldn't say she's depicted as a slut here. I mean, sure, there is the extremely over-sexualized body language, which she shows throughout the film in her interactions. But at the same time, there's really nothing new when you compare it to your own school years from, you know, that period when you were going through these same school stages that she's supposed to have. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, and, I, you know, you, you can't... So, ba- basically, what I'm trying to say is that her over-sexualized body language here does not say anything about her sexuality. In that sense, like it didn't say anything in the case of you and me and all of our classmates who pulled off this exact same shit, it's, it's kind of a meaningless what I guess I would be saying. Just the way that she talks about <clears throat> or how she walks around subjects of sexuality and sex. It's just very uh, repulsive. It is. It is. And it's kind of a meaningless and it's irritating. I admit that much. But still, like I said, you know, we both have seen this on our own school years when this happened all the time around you and me also, because it was the goddamn norm how everybody acted. It it was extremely pointless and irritating back at that time also. Yeah, I'm not religious, but God help us. Yeah, but once again, you know, that didn't mean anything. It was just trying to act a certain way, and there was nothing more to it. It was just surface. It was surface-level talk. It was surface-level actions. It was trying to portray some kind of an image that even the ones trying to portray it 
did not know what the hell it was, but everybody was just doing it because it was the fad at the time. And I would make the argument that it's the exact same case with the curse of Halloween here. Yeah, I mean, of course, I was a 15-year-old too, or however old these people are. Let's say they are 18, 19. Well, I've, I've, I've been there, but I've never been a pimbo. But if I were a pimbo, I would probably not do it in front of a camera. No, but then again, you know, they are not doing it in front of camera either. But they, are they, doing are. It am- <laughs> they are doing it amongst themselves because the camera does not exist in the universe the film is portraying. Yeah, and how is it likable? How do you feel uh, positive emotions towards these three people, specifically Laurie Strode? This is the heroine. I do not root for her. I want her to die. I'm not as harsh. I can't say I like her because the way Laurie Strode acts throughout the film has always grinded my gears with this film. I remember hating her from, or not hating her, but disliking her from the scene one, even on the first time seeing this film. Yeah. Like that one scene where she's fingering the bagel. Yeah. Which is the first you get of her. And I was immediately extremely irritated by her from that moment onwards. Even though she, she tones it down as the movie progresses, as the situation gets more violent and she's no longer in the safe environment, as happens when, you know, once she gets into the corsairs of Michael Myers and it becomes survival. Even though it, it helps, she becomes more likable as the situation escalates and she drops this bullshit and becomes simply someone who is trying to survive the situation. There is still the... I never got to like her as a character. Yeah. Yeah. She's annoying all the way through. Also in the ending, when she is, at least in the alternative cut, she is uh, specifically begging for Michael to let her go. And I'm just wishing, please, please, just strangle her right now. So it's, uh, it's not really working. I don't say she's likable, but I never hated her that much. It's kind of the weird situation where what you are being shown rubs you completely the wrong way. And it becomes your job to look past that. Look past what you are being shown and starting to forgive these characters what they are doing. Well, there is some sunshine between the hay. There is uh, Richard Lynch is playing Principal Chambers. I always kind of enjoy this kind of a enigmatic character. Very, It's a face that you can remember and uh, I would say a good character actor, especially for baddies. It's good to see him back. Unfortunately, he passed away recently, 2012. We go to the principal's office and little Mikey Myers is outside of the principal's office while the mother and the new Sam Loomis enter the offices. This is a pretty good scene. The actor of Sam Loomis is pretty good, Michael McDowell. It is uh, right now just kind of hard to think of a better actor for this role uh, apart from Donald Pleasance. I'm sure there are some. I didn't like his portrayal here on the first times that I saw this movie. I've kind of have softened a little bit 
to his portrayal. I still don't like him in Halloween too. I actually quite like Malcolm McDowell's Loomis in this film. Yeah. There is a lot of softening done to the character in this film to a point where you can actually believe that this could be a man who could work as a psychiatrist for a child. Yeah. You kind of get that feeling from the principal scene when you first meet the man because of, you know, the half long hair and the sunglasses and the absence of the trench coat. One of the more likable characters for me is actually the school bully. <laughs> oh, yeah, holy shit. I, I, I'm dying to hear the excuse for this one. <laughs> well, uh, at least this character had something fun to do here. And some of the lines are kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you mean the line where he asks if Michael's mom would suck his dick for a dollar. Yeah. Hey, ball liquor. Yep. But then... I, I, I can see you liking this character. I can see any rhyme or reason why you would do that. But like with Laurie Strode in this movie, I'm going to look past your actions. It's also maybe because this guy doesn't look like a bully. He looks like a pretty decent young man. And then Michael Myers kind of takes things quite seriously <clears throat> to the point of actually brutally hacking him to death. And this is a very memorable scene as well. Uh, whenever I think of this movie, the images in my head definitely start from this very violent scene. Me too. You know, it's it's my favorite kill. Yeah, it kind of sets sets the tone of the, of the film and makes it absolutely clear that this movie has nothing to do with the original Halloween, as far it's as all, pacing goes it, and uh, style. And it's also the most realistic kill that this whole franchise has had. Pulling off the kill itself here is something that basically everyone could do. I'm pushing some asshole in the woods with a stick and beating him repeatedly until the asshole is dead. You know, it does not take Michael Myers super strength or stealth or any cunning nature or teleportation powers which we have seen in the previous entries of this franchise. That is something that, you know, you, me, the guy next door could pull off. Anyone can ambush an asshole with a huge stick and then, you know, bludgeon him to death with it. Takes nothing except the will to do it. Yeah, it's just a very brutal kill. It's well executed. Uh, once again, they are definitely making some kind of a... I don't know how knowingly they are making it, but it's drawing the line here that this is what we're going to be and this is how it's going to be different to the original. And then we get to the Myers household... Michael is going trick-or-treating, getting some bad words from his sister's boyfriend, getting some more agitation going on, and kills the boyfriend of the mother. Finally, kills the boyfriend in the kitchen, also in a pretty brutal way. Grabs the mask. It's never made clear what Ronnie White is to Michael. Well, it's not a father. That much is clear. 
Yeah, that much is clear. It's not a father because the real father has died. But is Ronnie a boyfriend or a stepfather? Yeah. That's never shown. And that's another problem, this character and the relationship that they have. It is impossible to see the household woman to be actually in a relationship with this kind of a douchebag. I do not buy it. There is no rhyme or reason to it, especially seeing the kitchen scene. Now, how much have things escalated prior to that to get to that point? And being uh, like very uh, looming, very dangerous even to the kids in the household. But also these are things that do happen. They do happen. But yeah, uh, these these kind of relationships do exist, even though it does not make any kind of a easily approachable logic to you and me. They still do exist. You're right. You're right. We can like uh, think about it in the sense that there can be also, f- even though it's uh, made clear that the guy is not working, but there could be some financial or other kinds of obligations that for the reason that they are still together. Or sometimes people just stay with their abusers. It's a real psychological phenomena. Yeah, but this woman doesn't seem like somebody who could be controlled by such a character because they take head on, both of them. They are fighting with uh, no fences. But people who can still hit back... In these kind of a poisonous relationships, they don't always, for some reason, which is their own, break off the relationship and just end it. The other quite sad phenomena that can happen is that if the person manages to break off this kind of a relationship at, at some point, which unfortunately, as far as I've understood, more often than not, happens after there has been some kind of an, even if extremely mild, but still some kind of an outside interference. Yeah. After the interference manages to break off the relationship, there is the possibility that the person just ends up in his or her next relationship, which is exactly as bad, because they are repeating the mistake they did the first time. Yeah, can be many reasons there. You're right. Yeah. I just, uh, when watching it, I didn't feel like I could buy it because she feels like a very strong woman and could handle the situation one way or the other with with more than insults. I can buy the situation. This is not even close to the biggest issues that I have with the film. So it's not a big deal. Yeah, the movie does have some... For example, constructional issues, which I feel is kind of a product of the movie at the same time taking extremely long in certain parts. For example, you know, showcasing Michael's childhood. Yeah, the as as is done here. This is what forty minutes in total. Michael as a kid, and at the same time trying to speed off the events so that we get. To the Michael Myers, the crazed mask killer part of the movie. Exactly. Yeah, it's just in some way, I kind of, uh, even though in a parody way, I enjoyed 
that we are looking at the events of the Halloween 1978 with a kind of a fast forward button uh, after we have finished this 55 or so minutes of Michael's past and then jumping to uh, present day. When it comes to Michael's past, to give you an example what I mean, Michael moves by what we are being shown. Michael moves extremely quickly from hurting small animals to killing human beings. And trick-or-treating in between. Yep, and trick-or-treating between. But we are being shown one case of animal cruelty, which is Michael killing his pet rat. And we are hinted about another instance of animal cruelty when it comes to the dead, is it a cat that Michael had in his backpack? Yeah. We are not made clear. Did Michael do that or did Michael just find a dead animal even though there is pretty compelling evidence towards the possibility that Michael did kill the cat since Michael has been equipped with a camera so that he can take Polaroids of the carcass and a mini grip pack so that he can carry it around with him. So those details kind of a speak for the possibility that Michael did kill the cat, even though we are never actually shown or said that that's what happened, but it's strongly hinted. So there is, there's those two cases of animal cruelty, and the next violent action we get from Michael is when he murders the bully. And from there on, all his targets are human, if we do not count in that one scene of Grave decoration. It is actually unknown if the bully was ever connected to Michael. Of course, it's not hard to make the connection if you want to, but like finding the <clears throat> evidence that it was Michael, especially because Michael apparently doesn't remember any of it, at least the home killings, he does not remember them. So the bully is kind of uh, forgotten or just left outside of the plot. They are not coming back to it at any point anymore. No, but Bully's reason to be here is was never to actually work as a plot point where you come back to. We are being shown that Michael is being bullied pretty horribly at the school grounds, which means that he does not have any safe space. Not in his home and not at school, which are the two places where he spends most of his time. So both of those Places are hostile and dangerous to Michael. And then there's the threat made by the bully that he will humiliate Michael's mother publicly, making copies of that one newspaper ad of the strip club and showcasing it all around the school grounds. And through this interaction, there is shown Michael's dedication and love towards his mother, and also is shown Michael's need to be a protective figure for those two persons of his family, which is his mother and his little sister. And that's kind of what I would say is being said here, is being said the first interaction that finally springs Michael into action when it comes causing harm to other human beings. It's kind of a defensive act in the police case. 
and then it's just downhill from there. As it, for my understanding of violent behavior, more often than not is. Yeah, and you know what? I do not care if Michael was bullied or not. Uh, this is the central difference between these two versions, the original and this one. I understand that they're trying to do something different. They have to do something different. But why does it have to be exactly like, why are they bringing up the side of Michael, which was left out of the original Halloween, arguably because without showing it, that's what actually makes the movie. Because you do not give the background story to Michael. That is part of the appeal of Michael Myers and what makes him the boogeyman. Now you're kind of, you're making it dead obvious why this change might have happened. Because there's a psychotic lunatic in the house. All the, the whole family environment is toxic. Of course, there's something else always. No normal human being usually turns into a psychotic maniacal killer after experience, experiencing something like that. But I just don't care. Like, And when the movie gets to the second act, I suppose, we get to Haddonfield, Michael Myers comes to kill people as an adult. I mean, you already know why he's doing it. And it just removes the creep factor. You know all the background, you know why he's doing it. No big You know, you do know why he's doing it here. Michael's killing spree makes no fucking sense in the original one. And in original one, that was kind of the point. Yeah. But you, you can't say in the original, in John Carpenter's Halloween, that you know why Michael is doing what he's doing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And I, on the other hand, do not share your problem with trying to give an explanation to Michael. I have problems with it. I have extremely big problem with Michael Myers' childhood in this film. And it does hurt the experience for me extremely, extremely lot. But I do very well actually understand why they are taking this route. Because if you would not try to explain Michael Myers or his violent antics, then... Why the fuck would you make a remake? If you are bringing Indeed. nothing new to the table, then, you know, why, why remake? Yeah, this is a side of the character that we have not seen before. Uh, that, yeah. that being said, it's just I think it just doesn't give anything to anyone watching the movie. We could make a new Jason movie with the same kind of background. Why did Jason go crazy? Why are you in the lake 30 years and then you come back as a zombie killer? Can we talk about this, Jason? <laughs> It would not be the same Jason movie. However, because in those questions that you ask, if the movie would start to answer those, it would venture not completely new direction due to the fact that the Friday the 13th franchise went extremely supernatural on its run. But the answers would still show you something that you have not seen before as they would show you the transformation. Jason Voorhees, the somewhat retarded kid who drowns at the lake and then showcases he's coming back as some kind of a supernatural entity. 
And that is something that is never actually shown in the whole franchise. Let me put it this way, Henrik. What are you afraid of? Mostly, I'm afraid of myself. Because there are parts of you that are part of the unknown, is that it? Because there's parts that I know are extremely dark and extremely dangerous. There's a side of me which I'm extremely ashamed of and which I would hope I could get rid of. I could just cut it off myself somehow, you know, take an ice pick and just shove it to my brain and just, just remove it. But I can't do that. And it's a very strong side. Hmm. And I'm constantly having to go an inner struggle with that part of me. And there are moments when losing that battle appears very, very high possibility. And that's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of that I can't keep the monster inside. And at some point it will break out. And there will be consequences because of it. Because I do recognize the possibility of that happening. I think everybody has like a some kind of part like that. Not like to make it feel like it's not personal or different or something like that. But if you're saying what I think you're saying is that everybody has the dark side, the unknown that we're kind of afraid of. And somebody has sometimes said something really poetic and pretty about it. Yeah. I, of course, have it as well. There are moments where the emotional brain of me could take control over the rational brain. And this is what I try to, of course, avoid. Because I thoroughly believe that I want to and I should absolutely be a rational person. As far as I have read psychology and how human mind works, I think you can do things right always with your rational side of brain. Of course, there are situations where, for example, if your mother is under some kind of danger and you have to choose between saving the mother and uh, saving the neighbor's mother, of course, you will emotionally choose your own mother. But let's change it a little bit. Let's say it's your mother that you, you could save from some kind of a torture versus you could save uh, 5,000 people. Now, who would you save? Yeah, you would probably emotionally pick your mother. There may be some kind of a herd logic there, but the rational side of you would choose the 5,000 people because that would introduce the least amount of suffering for everyone. That would be a rational decision. I'm just saying that that is better. That is actually keeping the monster away because in good or bad the emotions sometimes control us and they don't make sense emotions don't make sense i mean of course they are part of you as a human being and they occur when you do different things that's natural but what i'm saying is that they don't matter to me really because at the end of the day they are usually wrong but then again, you need the emotions. I mean, it's a it's a balancing act, doing the right thing. And sometimes it takes rationality and suppressing your emotions and keeping them in control. And at at sometimes 
it takes following your emotions because the yeah yeah because give give well, me one good example where emotions are worth of anything in making logical decision making let's say let's take a corporate situation have a small larp here you are ceo of a big corporation you have god knows how many employees let's say you have 5000 employees and four factories doesn't matter but you have this shit ton of people working for you who have built their lives for the financial support you give them in form of paycheck in return of their you know labor and then you can make a huge killing financial wise make a huge profit by laying off let's say 2000 people and moving the jobs to some sweatshop in china let's go with that because trump brought it on the fringe so how do you choose the financial gain which is logical it's it's extremely rational i mean it helps you enormously you get a big payoff if you are stock exchange it means that you know the shareholders will be happy and that will be financial gain and financial stability to you will you take the moral choice the rational decision in this if you have some kind of standards that you follow some kind of a herd logic would be to just choose the decision that would cause the least amount of suffering so it could be the chinese business or keeping your employees or something in between but why, why to say why, why would you choose the option that would cause the least amount of suffering I because, mean, because that's one of those central rules. A moral code. Moral but code. Moral Mor- code is based on feelings. It's not rational. No, wrong. Because if you just uh, rationally look what every human being wants to have in life, like everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to be burning in a fire eternally. Yeah. So you choose between those. Why? You would choose whatever is the least painstaking for everyone. That's, once again, a feeling-based decision. No, it's not. Like, if if you go follow pure rational logic here, why the fuck would you care about anyone else? What are they to you? They are goddamn faceless workforce. They are people you exploit. Because... To make yourself profit. So, why care about them? Caring is a is an emotion. Because You're showing feeling at yeah. that moment when you care another person. Because if you inflict suffering on people, then if everybody would do it, then that would be a problem. Of course, you can be a sleazebag and do what the hell you want. But if you go with the least amount of suffering logic, which is based on logic, rationality, it doesn't have to be emotion-based. Of course... It is about emotions, but that in itself is just rational thinking. Emotions are not rational thinking. It's, I mean, if we go by your earlier statement, it's exactly the opposite of that. You try to suppress the emotional side and reacting emotionally into situations to maximize reacting rationally to those situations. Yeah, of course. And it's no different here. Well, it's, it's precisely different. 
No. Why, why, no. The, why, why, why the hell would you say that you are taking the sleazebag route? If you choose your own that chance of making profit over the suffering of the workforce. That being a sleazebag route, I mean, wouldn't that be the rational route? No. Give, give me the rational explanation on why you should care about the workforce in this scenario. Because if we follow your logic, we will inflict this negative emotion which will lead to violence and agony. And why should we care? It does not hurt us. It may hurt someone else. It may hurt a bunch of Chinese working on hazardous factory environment. But why should you care? It's financial gain for you. I get what you are saying. I get the point of us trying to aim to cause least amount of suffering to everybody. And I fully agree with you, but I say that us showing care and us trying to minimize suffering, especially when the act of lessening the suffering somehow would prevent us getting the maximum amount of profit to ourselves as individuals. I make the argument that that is the emotional reaction. You put other other people's well-being on the same level or in front of your own well-being on that moment. Well, it just comes down to would you like to burn in hell or live happily ever after? That's, uh, that is a theological question. No, no. It, it is. It, it, it's a, it's hell, an example. A, do you hell. want to do you want to suffer? Do you want others to suffer? And if you give suffering to other ones, then you just cannot maintain like a healthy environment if you keep on inflicting pain to others and just taking gain to yourself. Then where is the rationality in there? It is in the point that even though you can't keep up healthy environment, you yourself doesn't need to live in that environment. But you do live in the same environment. Not necessarily. It depends on, you know, the environment where the effect is felt. If you do not share space with your workforce, if you never see them, if you never interact with them, if you are just, you know, in your office, maybe in another building, because you are at this point running a, a factory chain with 5,000 workers. It's not just a single factory. It's some kind of a corporation which you are running. So most likely you will never even be in that factory. Now you are at the, you know, the headquarters, somewhere completely removed. Your social circles come from your own economical class. If you do not make the choice of deliberately taking part of the circles of your workforce. And that once again takes extra amount of time and energy from you because now you have to go meet them and spend time with them. There so you, there you it, have to yeah there you have to balance it of course. You have yeah, to but make, what, make hmm. once again you don't have a rational reason to do that. Choosing you care about them is an emotional choice. Nobody's forcing you. You can Let's... stay completely faceless to you. They can be completely faceless to you. And Let's follow your logic and do what you're saying right now. Yep. Uh, how, how would the world be? My world. 
would be fucking golden. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, like every, con- every country burning in war and suffering and agony and torture and fire and... Yep, yep. And me being a rational person right there, looking my surroundings and noticing that there's nothing wrong with there. Nothing threatens me. I'm loaded money-wise. I have my own social circles that are isolated from the shitstorm around me because I can make that. I have the financial situation to actually build that bubble around me. So me counting out the emotions, there's no reason for me to care. There's no reason for me to care what happens in the neighboring country. What are they to me? You know, I I just, you know, pick a better holiday destination. Well, we can pick many examples. Let's, for argument's sake, pick like country like Syria because we ignored it for so long and now it's our problem as well because we didn't give a shit and now it's on our turf not on my turf that much well it will be on my turf when i go to spain but, but anyway don't go to spain man go to a safer destination why not why not why go to spain it's because because it will soon be here minus 20 celsius and the coal will come into the air and i cannot breathe here and we have to wear a like a yeah, breathing yeah, mask. Yeah. But I'd rather be in the beach with 20 Celsius in the winter time. But and you can enjoy the sun. Be- safer beach. Yeah, I'll be I'll be fine. Yeah, but once again, what's the rational, you know, decision to go precisely to Spain? It depends on the area that you are in Spain. Yeah. So basically Syria does not affect you. I mean, well, there's no reason to get emotional here, is there? I'm not getting emotional. I I don't have any emotions. Yeah. So, you know, why care about Syria? You just choose the safe space. Because I choose not to have suffering. And that's emotional, once again. No. Syrian suffering does not affect you at the moment. It it does not affect you in the future, as long as you pick the right locations. Yeah, but... What is me? Because I'm not thinking only about me. And it's not, that's it's not about that's, me. That's and that's emotional and that is reaction. The, and no, that is the logical hurt reaction. It's not logical because why would you not think only about yourself? To you, basically, to your own well-being, only you matter. Because I do not matter. I'm just a part of a bigger society, bigger reality. I'm just one part, and, one entity. You have to get outside of your head. That that's uh, that's emotional thinking once again. No. Yes, it is. You know that 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 is you seeing something more important than yourself. Yeah, because I see the world and I see that I'm not important. Yeah, and once again, because I put it in the context, and the context is based on emotion. It's based on caring. It's based on bigger picture, which does not help it's you in any based way. On, it's based on... You are trying to make the bird a better place. No, as, as long as it's not taking my energy in a negative way, there is no problem with that. Nope, I, I, I get what you are aiming at. But I disagree with your point. Yeah, I see that you do. Yeah. Well, we can... 
try to continue that some other time. We are going in circles. But this started from me kind of explaining how my head functions and I believe how my headspace should function. And no, I... Not to take anything away from me, but also not to cause intentional suffering to others. But once again, you know, causing intentional suffering to others at some point profits you. Yeah, and there you have to kind of choose the road that you can see as causing the least amount of that suffering. Yeah, and I, while I agree with that, that is what you should do. I I see that one as a emotional choice because once once again you are sacrificing It's... your own well-being and your own profit. No. You are not maximizing the profit. You are putting something on top of you. Something is more important than you getting it all. Yeah, and that's for emotional. Sure. That's emotional. Isn't isn't it emotional to only think about yourself as well? No, I would say that's extremely rational because. That is something that directly helps you. Doing the opposite somehow But is how are how are you uh, away from you? How how is that coming from a, like a level-headed thinking? If you take advantage of others and you notice that that you're hurting others in the process clearly without a doubt, without a question, then that should adversely affect also your psyche. So how is that beneficial then? Only if you allow it. Only if you allow... Because the effect on your psyche will stem from emotions. So suppress the emotions and there's no harm. Well, then it comes to the question, what would be the correct human values to follow? If I anything, would, I, I would supposedly say, you don't follow any moral code. I, I follow a moral code. I follow extremely strict moral code but my moral code is is a combination of logical and rational thinking and emotional decision making trying to make decisions that i feel are the right ones putting yeah, others which is illogical which which is illogical precisely i i'm trying to do a balancing act yeah between logic and emotion At times, I'm thinking the situation is extremely illogical and trying to approach the situation as clinically as I possibly can and thinking myself, thinking how will this help me? How will I benefit? I make those decisions and on, at sometimes I put others in front of me. I make sacrifices. I sacrifice my energy, I sacrifice my time to help someone else who I may not even know. I have never seen that person, I will never see that person again. There's no gain for me, but I will do that because I feel it. it's the right choice, because it's the moral choice. I care about my loved ones and my social circles. I care about people I come into contact with me, and I try to help them, even yeah, though that But act of helping is taking away from me. Is it, though? It is, because I have to do something. I have to sacrifice my time. I have to sacrifice my energy. I have yeah. to sacrifice resources. You do, at but let's let's take an example that you... Help some old granny put some kind of a sign 
above her shop so she can do business. You should get like a some kind of a emotional gratification for helping that woman who cannot do that and let's say it didn't take a lot of your time and then the grandmother thanks you profusely for putting up that billboard or sign. You you get the emotional gratification. Yes, we're talking about emotions now. But getting that emotional gratification is also part of a human psyche. You get that emotional response to that. And because this is beneficial to your psyche, that makes it the logical decision. But it's beneficial to my psyche only because I choose and aim to live in contact with my emotions because I'm not actively trying to cut them off of myself. I'm carrying them with me. It's an interesting discussion that we could continue, like, who knows how long. But yeah, to get this back to the movie. Yeah, so we are in the scene where Michael hits the boyfriend in the back of the head with the aluminum baseball bat. Yeah, and then kills basically the entire household of people. The boyfriend, the sister, and the horrible stepfather slash boyfriend. But in a surprisingly, incredibly humanizing move towards Michael, Michael makes the emotional choice of not hurting Lori. Instead, actually showing even in Amit's all this carnage and mayhem that he's causing inside the house, he's shown still trying to take care of his little sister. And there is kind of a, I get this feeling with that scene that once again, like with the school bully who threatened to humiliate Michael's mother and the killing was a defensive act of Michael protecting his mother here, killing the household and these poisonous toxic people inside the house is a protective measure that Michael takes towards his little sister. Yeah, and then we take Michael to the sanitarium and to kind of pull this uh, the full circle with our discussion that we had. I ask you, what are you afraid of? And what I feel that I'm often afraid of, that being, of course, completely irrational, or it can also be kind of a warning system to yourself. What you and I probably and people in general are afraid of is the unknown which Michael Myers was in the original Halloween 1978 version but here everything is laid out you know everything about this guy granted he is behind the mask so you do not see all the emotions except the emotions of the mask you could say but that part of the mythology that poetic loomis exposition is gone because here you do not need that you know everything already in the original movie you get this poetic quality and this kind of um, warm fireplace, uh, scary story type of feeling about Michael. That uh, he's pure evil, that his eyes are black as the deepest abyss. But here, it's more like uh, some kind of a clinical study. It is. And yeah, you do lose that mystique surrounding Michael Myers and his actions in Rob Jumbies remake but once again if you're not trying to pull something new why do a remake why not just a direct sequel yeah why not just make a sequel to resurrection yeah and in that sense i don't hate the fact that 
the movie tries to explain Michael Myers. We lose things, we lose mystique, and we lose extremely important part of Michael Myers that was presented to us in the previous entries. But trying to answer the question, why did Michael Myers become Michael Myers, is the part of the movie that gives it a reason to exist as a remake. Because that is the moment where the movie takes its own road. Yeah, there are logical issues here already with the fact that Loomis is talking to the tape that there are problems with the masks because it seems like the mask is not exactly a direct quote but looks like the mask is removing the character of Michael Myers and in its place is coming something empty. So why the fuck give him the masks? And that that is one of the parts that Absolutely make no sense when it comes to the mental asylum. Just like it's extremely of dodgy of Danny Trejo's character Ismail to give Michael the advice that you need to learn to live inside your head. I mean, that's technically he's giving the advice of getting to know your own headspace. The psychotic kid who, in my opinion, should do the precisely the opposite. Trying to remove the headspace because the headspace obviously is dangerous. It has already killed four people. So, goddamn, you know, don't learn to live in there. But that's the advice that is given. And the same way the staff allows Michael to have all these masks and allows him to keep making the masks, even though throughout the entire time, Michael's mental state just reverses. Which we continue with the scene with the nurse, where she makes the remark that the sister could not possibly be related to to you. Uh, A true professional nurse in an asylum. Yep. However, this gives the reason for Michael to kill her, the mother. That's the Smith's crow for you. It's still the one asylum that lets dangerously mentally ill patients to wander around outside at nighttime, and which repeatedly refuses to acknowledge the danger that Michael presents in the past entries of this franchise and even here. The Smith's Crow Asylum seems to be the most ineffective and most amateurish mental state facility that you can get. Yes, my favorite theory is still that when Michael was in the original series a kid, Dr. Wynn used to take him with his car to Burger King. And when you look how Smith's Crow operates, you can kind of believe that that actually could have happened. <laughs> because, hell be God, but throughout this series, when it comes to Smith's Crow and the mental health professionals in this franchise, a Dr. Loomis seems to be the only capable person to exist. After this little incident with the nurse, the mother kills herself. Which is a very... I can totally believe this situation. 
the situation is so grim that totally can see that. Yeah, me too. Also in this remake, Dr. Loomis has been with Michael, I believe, for 15 years. He makes the remark that uh, that's nearly twice as long as my first marriage. That's also interesting that he has been talking for 15 years to a person who doesn't talk back to you. And there seems to be no emotional response from him. At least at this point, the response is about zero. Then we get to the book event. It's kind of funny. And I wonder how legal it would be for the doctor to make a book about one of his ex-patients. Interesting situation. I guess it's workable. Uh, that's... In the United States, anyway. Yeah. Wouldn't be the first book to be done. The whole true crime and, you know, explaining... I, I don't know how how tight the patient confidentiality mm. is in US, but these books do get made. And we don't know exactly how confidential information Loomis uses in his book. If we go with the Serif Brackets notion, it kind of uh, would appear to be just typical true crime book that would take a few chapters to explain the mental side of the Myers murders. And there are two versions of the scene where Michael escapes from sanitarium. There is the one that is in the unrated version, at least the the rape scene inside Michael's cell, which is kind of abhorrent crap. Then there is the other version that was removed, I think. I think it's a deleted scene, but there are two versions of this movie, the unrated and the other version, which I believe is the theatrical version. In the unrated version, there's the rape, and then there's a scene where Michael just starts uh, throwing the guards against the walls and just kills two or three people just like that, and he escapes. I did not like that the Danny Trejo character, Ismail Krutz, was crucified against the wall or whatever was done to him. He got the television to his head. Yeah, he got the prime time. Yeah, bitch. I mean, this this was this was a good person. He didn't, as far as we know, he didn't do anything bad to Michael Myers. But this is, uh, again, kind of trying to drive home the idea that He's pure evil and he just doesn't care at this point, I suppose. It's showcasing the cruelty of this world and giving you the point that being the good person or doing the right thing, as Cruz does with his interactions with Michael, where he is nice to Michael when he tries to support Michael throughout all these years, that none of it matters in the end. I do grant that. Joe Grizzly, bitch, is a funny character. It's kind of made out to be this kind of a character that they seem to want to be this kind of a, get this kind of a cult status. That's how it seems like. He comes to the scene and he's all like playing as this tough guy and Grizzly's back in town. And he gives this interesting line deliveries to Michael Myers in the toilet. But Joe Grizzly, bitch, bites the dust and Michael gets the overalls from the guy. 
as he has to, since this is a Halloween movie. And that means that some kind of a car mechanic or truck driver needs to get killed so that Michael can put on his outfit. Yeah, for the second time, and uh, this year it will be for the third time. Yep. Or what happened in Halloween 4? Oh yeah, another mechanic, so would be the fourth time. A trailer does not pay that well, you know, to you. Your chances of ever getting to a retirement to be a car mechanic in Haddonfield. <laughs> or, you know, anywhere near Haddonfield. There's like 100 mile radius surrounding Haddonfield where you definitely should never become a car mechanic. Yeah. But I I do like the grizzly scene, which I think is pretty funny and pretty well shot. And I do like how they shot the Loomis's book event scene earlier in this movie. In both of these scenes, I think there's some pretty strong cinematography, ex- especially in that book event scene. It- Even though the last three cuts in the book event kind of a don't completely work. I see what they were trying to do with those cuts, but to me, the effect was more comical in the final seconds. But still, overall, I like both of these scenes. Yeah, and now we get to the best part, the bagel part. Yeah, the sex with a bagel. Yeah, this is how we introduce Laurie Strode. Well, it's memorable. I give you that one. Mm, it's a contrast to the original. I give you that one. It's more memorable than the goddamn Budweiser that we once again have to return in this episode because all of the cheap beer drinking. And Budweiser ain't even cheap in Finland. So God fucking damn. Yeah, it probably isn't. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rob. And here is where the parody parts start to kick in. Tommy comes running down the road and already Laurie's like, oh God, not you. And she completely doesn't care about the Mexican werewolf or what, whatever he's talking about. Yeah, to her defense, neither would I. I mean, even I wouldn't want to start my day with, with a kid coming to explain to me something about Mexican werewolf. Uh, then we have sex with a leather box, witnessed by a kid. Oh. <sighs> it's more the Mexican werewolf. I would make the argument. Even though, even though this leads into that extremely hilarious moment when Michael recognizes Lori as his sister by sniffing an envelope. Just, Is that how you took it? That's exactly how I took it. Oh, okay. We are showing Michael sniffing the envelope. And immediately from that moment onwards, he manages to zoom in to Lori. I just took it as that he's a pervert. Well, to me, there has to be a logic or some kind of explanation. How Michael Myers, who has not seen Laurie since she was a little kid, just a baby, and Michael got locked up in Smith's Crow, how does Michael actually recognize who is Laurie? As he has to do, since basically what Michael is trying to do this entire film is to connect I would say it's just the supernatural edge vibe stuff. Yeah, but you know, to me it's the envelope sniffing. Okay, we we go with that. As a person who has a lot of experience with sniffing in, in, mail, in, in, in sniffing sniffing envelopes. 
I can vouch for the fact that that's not how envelopes work. I sniff my mail sometimes. Yeah. If the ink smells really good. Yeah. Not know about that, yo. I just try to sniff other people's mail. Just so that I can get a little bit more closer to them. Yeah. Thank God, you know. I mean, it's a huge blessing that the person living right next door does not care about my antics. He's extremely forgiving in that matter. Maybe he's listening to you with the butcher knife behind the wall. Yeah, maybe. That's always a possibility. Or if I get lucky, he never ends up listening to this podcast. (laughs) But in case you do, you know, next door neighbor, (laughs) thanks a lot. (laughs) And and my apologies, sniffing your envelopes. Well, 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 ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Harris is back in Halloween. Uh, Daniel Harris has a pretty good record for trying to always kind of sneak into the Halloween series and franchise. She wanted to be in Halloween 6, even though she was not even originally invited. She didn't join that project for many reasons. Uh, I'm not so sure if she was into getting into H2O, but she did want to get into the Rob Zombie project, I believe, and she was wishing for a role in Halloween 2018. Would have been kind of a interesting situation if Daniel Harris would have actually reprised her role as Jamie Lloyd, but then it gets very confusing for the audience. But you know, if you're going to draw this kind of an alternative reality, then I would have had a ball and... It definitely would have been a better character than this, whatever this brainless stuff is going on in Rob Zombie's Halloween. I do not like her character in this film. I do not like the dialogue. I think there's nothing likable about Daniel Harris in this film, even though it's Daniel Harris, but it's really a douchey character. I think she's okay here. You seem very forgiving. That I, I, I agree with your point. In her being douchey here. But once again, so is everybody else. Well, she does look really young in this one. But interesting, though, I think she is about... Was she like uh, 28 during the filming? And she's playing somebody who is supposed to be around 18, I believe. So Typical Hollywood. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, increased. John Travolta was a college student. Go figure that one out. Yeah, and this series and many horror series, they want to have teenagers, but they rarely even take any teenagers. In Halloween H2O, this... Oh, God, what's his name? Lin, Lin Bird. Uh, this Bird dude from <laughs> H2O. He, he was 16 during the filming. That's kind of exceptional. Not even in the 18 maturity age where they start to pick up actors more easily. Yeah, it's it's one of those extremely rare phenomena in in Hollywood films where they actually cast an actor that is at the right age. Yeah, even the carpenter is a filthy-mouthed little adult in this movie. <laughs> but then again, the whole graveyard scene is also elevated from the original one, where it was just one death of a tombstone. And here it is, an animal sacrifice. I would be cursing too at that point. Even though, once again, I love Sam Loomis defending 
he spoke to the caretaker. Here, when the caretaker asks Loomis, the caretaker does not know who Sam Loomis is and accidentally asks Loomis if he has read his own book and Loomis not giving his identity away just goes and remarks that, oh yeah, it was a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, well, funny. <clears throat> I also kind of like the pretty obvious parody again, parody version of Bob in this film. Bob is really abused here. His bed performance is zero according to the lady and they make fun of the whole character. Everyone's intellect is being challenged here. Yeah, especially the viewers. But then again, you know, you did get the comeback of of the legendary scary ghost scene from the original. So maybe you should just count your blessings where you can get them. At least this time, Michael actually did bring the beer. But what I found kind of a hilarious in the scary ghost scene is that we are once again in the movie territory where nobody ever hears the bumps or screams of agony happening right in the next door or the next room. What's your favorite moment of not hearing the agonized screams in Halloween series? I would go with the Halloween H2O and Marion Chambers in here, goddammit! There's two officers in the building next to it, not hearing anything from the open window. Was the window open? Well, because she broke it, and then she screamed and died. Okay. Yeah, but really hard at at this point following this franchise, it's extremely hard to keep track and remember individual killer scenes. There's been a lot. Yeah. A lot of carnage. There's some foul language again in this scene where Annie and Laurie are talking about, I believe it's a, yeah, Ben Tramer. They're talking about Ben Tramer in this version as well. Yeah. Say what you will about Rob Zombie's remake, but at least the dude did bring back Ben Tramer. Keeping up the legacy of Ben Tramer, one and only. That alone is a reason for this movie to exist. Rob Zombie doing what no one else in the goddamn franchise managed to, or, you know, agreed to do after Halloween Part 2. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis didn't even remember this character. So I will give some bonus points for Zombie for this effort. God bless the man. And I do like the new sheriff. It's a good choice. Brad Dourif. Brad Dourif is always, always a stable cast in your movie. Can bring up basically anything you give to the man. Yeah, great job. And one of the most likable characters in this film. Actually, kind of the only nice guy that we have here. Yeah, I would just question, was it really worth it for Daniel Harris to return to this series as some kind of a throwaway character and actually exposing her nipples in this movie? And uh, previously we have seen her as a child actor. I feel slightly weird about it and the whole decision to bring her back for this. They could have made a better use of it. She did. She did net, net uh, place in the sequel. I like the face paint of Tommy. Good job. A little bit too standard for my taste, actually. 
Oh, okay. I've never much celebrated Halloween with the face paint, so. Or celebrated Halloween all together. Yeah, apart from the movie happenings. Yeah, well, you you have those go- going for you. I I myself usually just try to avoid the whole ha- uh, Halloween as much as I can. I still want to do something interesting on one Halloween these days. I want to buy the Halloween 1 or Halloween 2 stylized Michael Myers mask and go stalking on the streets like some kind of a stupid Sexual kid. Sexual pervert. And... Stalk on people. I need to do that. There's some kind of a child brain that makes me do this. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to hear you trying to explain the rationality behind that one. <laughs> but seriously, you know, Halloween is an American holiday and they can keep their goddamn holidays. And I don't actually, I don't need Halloween as a holiday. We have our own Finnish traditions, which is... Nothing. St- staying quiet and going to the graveyards, to paying quiet respect to those who have passed. Which we don't do. Which is... Which I do. Which is the exact same shit we do basically every other ho- holiday we have in this country. And God bless if that's not a great tradition. Tradition. Let's talk about Finland and traditions. There are none. There's when... a lot of traditions. No, there's n- nothing there, there left. Is, no, there, there's there something is... on paper, but there's nothing in actuality happening. Well, that that's only because, you know, you exercised yourself in Poland and have forgotten your roots and the traditions and, and are not upholding them anymore. No. Nope. You horrible human being. <laughs> no. Nope. Where nope. is the Here... graveyard visits? God damn it. Let's compare with Poland, because I can. Because in almost every city here, you have different kind of... Maybe not... you. Yeah, you can have like different traditions when it comes to food, some kind of events. Try finding that in Finland. Nah. Also, just... You have traditional foods. But who's eating them? Because here it's very, very clear. If, If you have like a special event day of the year then you follow the traditions pretty clearly. You eat that food that you're supposed to eat, you have your pierogies on on one day, and then you go commemorate the Second World War every other day. I follow the Finnish traditions. My family follows the Finnish traditions. Which are are what? We we eat the traditional foods on the set holidays. We do the graveyard visits. When somebody asks me what kind of traditions Finns have, and then I look at what I actually do, that there's basically nothing. I think this is the case for many in the, at least in the Helsinki area. There are no f- traditions anymore. It's, and, uh, it's dying. And I, I can fully believe that. Yeah. Because to all our listeners around the world, I want to point out that when it comes to Finland, city of Helsinki is and always has been a sad mistake. It is the capital city of Finland. Only because the people living in Turku were too fucking stupid. And they burned down their own city. <laughs> That's why we have to follow Helsinki. And, you know, everybody, to everybody visiting Finland, 
I apologize that you have to experience Helsinki. No, you don't. There's I, 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 I do. I, I do. I, I hope that at some point, at some point, you know, Helsinki will be invaded and it will be, you know, renamed as Grand Tampere. Because... Uh, I mean, I mean as, as a person who has spent his childhood in Helsinki, you know, answer me this one. Do the people living in Helsinki even mentally masturbate to the winter war in every goddamn moment? Never. Yeah. So th- there you have Helsinki, basically a fake Finland. Because I'm such a rational human being, of course, I don't have any like huge affection for the Helsinki city area, and I don't it, do not have a huge affection for the rest of the Finland either. I see the plus and minus sides. I see that Helsinki is losing its traditions, and when living here, I have found kind of a maybe newfound respect for having some kind of traditions. But not in the way that it's kind of getting invading that you you have to celebrate it or then you are a bad human being. Not that type of thing. But I don't even know anymore like what you're supposed to do on different event days. Well, holy shit, man. Uh, of course you should know what you are supposed to do on the event days. You eat the traditional foods and you go to the graveyards. Like, seriously. Where's your morbid connection with death? Which is something that every Finn should share. We still have something of a Christmas. But that's just because we often gather to our grandparents' house to have some kind of a traditional food. But even though they have also moved to the pre-made food, they don't want to cook anymore. I understand that. Holy fuck. Like, I, I feel sorry for you all again. <laughs> it must be hell. <laughs> you know, because, because, you know, my my family, on the other hand, pretty much cooks extremely well every Christmas. That's great to hear. I mean, sometimes I, I wish we could have back the good old times when I was six and my father would go to our countryside property to get with huge effort this live Christmas tree and then put it into the trunk and then drive it back 300 kilometers back to Helsinki and then put it up and then forget it to the living room for six months and then throw it out (laughs) of the balcony and (laughs) having a few choice words in between and good old times. You know, man, you, that's uh, that's something that you have to fight for. You you have to be the repairing force <laughs> in your bloodline who brings back all these traditions. It's your solemn duty now that you actually recognize what you are missing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> that I mean, and that... Start, starting to visit the goddamn graveyards. I, I do admit that uh, the real... Christmas tree was one of the memorable things with the smell and just its being there. But now with this plastic tree, I just couldn't give a flying damn, really, if it's there or not. Yeah, the plastic Christmas trees are are abomination on the face of the earth. Just 
to fix a little bit that so that my whole family will not hate me until the end of times. There have been also some really cooked food in those Christmas events. (laughs) And all of the food has been great. No complaints at all. (laughs) Yeah, that's a close save by your part. But uh, again, when it comes to Halloween, yeah, it feels very artificial that we celebrate it in Finland because it, I feel it's something that has kind of emerged from foreign worlds, mainly it is. United States. Yeah, and that they stay. Well, I think there's like this trend that we try to copy U.S. in so many ways these days. Bring all these holidays to Finland and. And trying to find kind of the spirit that the Americans have behind their holidays, which hopefully never comes into fruition. Speaking of this particular Halloween evening, Michael Myers finds Laurie Strode and there's a big showdown with this kind of abysmal choice for a finale swimming pool. But this is where it ends. This always felt to me as such of a choice that they didn't really think this very well through. But Michael Myers is shot uh, in the swimming pool. He comes back, attacks the car. There's some negotiations. In my version, in this unrated version, uh, there is this uh, very, very long and kind of tiresome fight scene after this. uh, And I'm not sure if this is in the theatrical version. I would say it wasn't. But if it is, it's really taking too long. It's getting boring at this point. Yeah, which one of the two fight scenes? Because the, the well, finale well, is pretty much it from, from the part that when we cut in what appears to be the Myers script or Myers mausoleum. I'm talking about the whole fight that appears after Michael attacks, comes to the car and breaks the window, then drags Laurie into the house, and then there's a, like a five or seven minute, what feels like a very extended scene. I somewhat liked about it. It at times it does get too long, especially since we already have had the kind of a showdown before that, before they get into the car at the pool. But there is still some great moments in that second confrontation, and I uh, I especially like the the moment when. Laurie is hiding at the attic, you know, beneath the roof there. And Michael is having the two by four, which he uses to smash the roof. Yeah, before the attic scene, when Michael is looking for Laurie, there is a moment when it gets really silent. And I just had a flashback from viewing this movie on the time before. And also at that point, I remember losing my concentration at this moment. Which is uh, signaling to me that I'm wishing for the end of the movie at this point. But you do get the attic scene right after that. Yeah, you do. You get the loud bang, Michael Myers smashing the wall and then she gets to the attic. And I still like the attic scene. So I I would make the argument that you get some payoff. Right after, you know, trying to snooze off with the ending of this film. That's one of the moments where the finale draws too long but after that moment you once again get uh, in my opinion 
pretty intense and pretty nice scene. Well, you know what? I can say that they chose the right ending <coughs> where Laurie shoots Michael in the head. That's in my version anyway. And then it ends. Same here. Uh, we are both going with the unrated cut here. Yeah. Or the uncut version. That was what finally got released, the DVD. There is an alternative ending. Could be even several of them. <laughs> but this one ending is where Michael is surrounded by the police. They are aiming at him. Michael lets Laurie go because Sam Loomis tells him to do so. And then suddenly Michael starts walking towards Laurie. And immediately the cops gun him down. And it ends there. Okay. I remember seeing that one some years ago when I last checked up on this movie. In this version, the other themes we get from Michael's accents, those being Michael trying to connect with his sister after all these years. And then Michael finally kind of uh, giving up and choosing to die at the very end of the movie. Henrik, would you recommend Rob Zombie's Halloween? It's a tricky question because I see a lot of merit in Rob Zombie's Halloween. And when it comes to some of the aspects of this movie, I do not hate them nearly as much as you appear to do. I see a point, for example, in in the scenes that concentrate on Michael's childhood. I should say that I've grown softer towards this movie, because on the first goes, I didn't like it at all. But now if you think about it as a kind of a standalone as it is, it has its moments, but yeah, it's a different beast. That it is, and on a virtue of being a different kind of a beast, in my opinion, it has reason to exist. Like this this is not this is not a cash crap like some of the sequels we have already sat through in this podcast when following this franchise. This is a movie that has a meaning behind it and has a reason to exist as a film. But at at the same time I feel that the movie makes some pretty drastic mistakes. The biggest one, in my opinion, being the easy shortcuts it takes when trying to explain Michael's madness. I feel that the since, since this is a remake, it's a right direction to take to try to answer the question, why did Michael Myers turn into Michael Myers that we know? But I feel that we would have gotten a more interesting answers had Michael still come from an average suburban family that is part of the middle class, that on the surface has everything right and everything going for it. If we would have had the family from the original film and then followed what went wrong in that family to turn Michael Myers into a psychopath, it would have been more interesting and more talkative approach than what we are given here, where, oh yeah, it's the shitty white trash family. It's too easy. It's too easy. It's too... It's delivered seen. on a plate. Yeah, and seen too many goddamn times, because this is the mm. go-to reason that horror movies try to pull off every single time when they try to find an easy answer 
to the question, why did this person turn this way? And I'm kind of a tired of seeing the same goddamn excuse being made. Oh yeah, it's the white trash family. Once a fucking again. That's why the bad things happened. And I'm I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that that is the answer that Rob Zombie delivers us. And I feel that the movie gets better on the second part once Michael is an adult. Once the killing spree starts, I just couldn't get behind the first half of the movie. There's noble attempts. There is a lot to like in the first half of the movie. There is Loomis actually finally fucking trying to take contact with Michael and uh, trying to work as a psychiatrist and trying to help Michael. But it's, it's just, in my opinion, not enough. And on the later part of the movie, I do like that even though Michael is not anymore this cat-like predator that he was in the previous installments, here he moves more like a human tank. But at the same time, he's more tactical with his approach like the moment where he's using Annie as a distraction for Laurie to get into her. Or, you know, the themes of Michael's actions basically trying to refight and reconnect with Laurie. And at the final scene here in, at the uncut version of the film, when Laurie is pointing the gun at Michael's face, Michael kind of grabbing her hands and holding the gun towards his face so that Laurie can take that point blank shot. They are all really nice touches, but maybe oh, not that's enough. How I, well, I just took it as that Loomis tried to get the gun away from her so that she would, would not shoot him. But he's not moving the hands away in any direction. He just grabs Lori's hand yeah, and the hands, uh, hands stay still. Yeah, to me, that was the moment when Michael non-verbally asks Lori to shoot him. <clears throat> Interesting reading. I yeah, think well, it that, was just, yeah. just for me to tell Lori to... Not shoot, like, calm down, stop it. And it could be also that. The movie does not give us a definitive answer on what Michael was trying to do. But that's my take. Well, it's sure interesting, your version. But still, to answer the original question, would I recommend Rob Zombie's remake, Halloween? Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. Okay. Everything that I see going for this movie. And I'm not saying that it's a train wreck. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm... It's not a movie without a merit, but some of the answers, I feel I've seen them too many times. And that the movie here takes too long with the answers I've already experienced before. So, no, I wouldn't recommend this one. If you choose to see this, go ahead. All the best for you. And if watching this, you, you can find, in my opinion, a lot of things in this movie. But I still won't give a recommendation. I'm less forgiving for this movie. Although I'm also not calling it a total train wreck either. If this would not be called Halloween and it would be just like a another kind of horror movie. You wouldn't have watched this. I wouldn't have probably watched this. But I would probably give it more value than as being called Halloween. If we wipe... 
the slate clean and do not think about the Halloween 1978 movie or the rest of the series at all. Like you said, we have seen the first half type of thing many times, and I would argue that we have seen the second and third parts as well many times. I wouldn't exactly say that it's a cash grab, but I would say that it's a very uninspired film, and this dialogue is terrible for most of the part, and these the teenagers are beyond obnoxious. There is a good quote from one scene that kind of exemplifies my feelings for this movie in a way, which is, quote, This is going to be a long night for the both of us. I like the first third of the movie much more than you do. I mean, if you're going to do a repetition of Halloween 1978 in some way, then you might as well indeed tell the backstory. The backstory for me was still, even though it kind of destroys the whole mythos of Michael Myers, it's still more interesting than the rest of the movie, which kind of goes just full slasher without providing anything that we haven't seen before. Not saying that the beginning 55 minutes of the movie are anything that original either. It's Rob Zombie doing his thing. Flash cuts, different color grading, quick edits, music, sound effects. He likes to go noisy and big and colorful. It's not scary. It's a butcher fest. And the ending drags on a lot. And if you take the Halloween 1978 into account, then we are in a pretty terrible waters here. Because this movie, in my opinion, man, takes the story of Halloween 1978 and does a complete U-turn with it. It shows you everything that you are not supposed to see if you go with the original story. That's pretty much all there is to it. It shows you the kills. It tells you the backstory. There's nothing behind Michael Myers anymore. Everything has been told. Which makes it uninteresting for me. Most slasher movies, and any horror movies actually, they play with the fear of the unknown. Here we don't have the unknown. Okay, we don't know why Michael Myers is a psychopath, actually. He killed his family, but you could argue that all the hatred inside the family and in the school does not explain why somebody would turn psychotic. That's right, some people just turn psychotic because they have the predisposition for violence. So, I would not recommend... And there we have it. There we have it. The budget was an estimated 15 million. Opening weekend USA 30 million. Uh, gross USA 58 million. And worldwide 80 million. So from 15 million budget to 80 million in worldwide gross. That is what I would say like a return to form in the box office sense. Which made the Halloween 2 sequel of Rob Zombie possible. I think there was even talk of a third part. But it didn't happen. Cop Jumpy's run with the franchise ends with Halloween 2. What would you cut in this film? I would remake the first half of the movie. I would trim the first half of the movie as well to get the gears going a little bit faster. And maybe maybe also that would allow for a little bit more air to be left in the middle part before the carnage begins. I would simply just do the first half completely again. Switch the family dynamic. 
Make it yeah. once again middle class suburban family, and from then start to find my answers inside that household. That's what I would do. My favorite performance is probably Sheriff Brackett. Yeah, I'll go with that. What about you? I take some Loomis, even though I like Brackett here a lot. If it goes to down to the line, I and I have to pick between Loomis and Brackett. I will pick Loomis because he still tries so goddamn hard uh, in this movie and with you, Michael. Yeah, there's something that I just don't find so appealing about this Loomis, and that might just be because I'm thinking of Donald Pleasance in my head when this guy pops on. That could be it, but yeah. It can be, and it's completely valid point, because yeah. Donald Pleasance was extremely great, and the Loomis he portrayed was a nice person, but I I feel that maybe the failure in Loomis trying to help Michael through all those years and failing in that. In my opinion, it's more strongly felt here. Loomis failing with Michael is stronger and more heartbreaking in Rob Jumpy's take where we see all these years and all these attempts and all the effort given only for it not eventually leading into anything except Loomis being forced to buy a gun and go after Michael just to put end to him because he failed in his numerous attempts to actually help the little boy. Yeah, the Pleasance's performance is on such a such a level of its own because Pleasance has the ability to give this kind of a delivery that is absolutely believable. Whereas I'm not saying that Malcolm McDowell is not doing a good job. He is, but it's just a kind of a different level of believability. Both are believable characters. They are just completely different, two completely different Loomises. Yeah, they are. We will definitely see that in the sequel, that's for sure. Yeah, there it comes way more obvious than in this one. What's your favorite scene? I would say it's the panning free shot of the Myers residence after the first killing spree when Michael butchers the family and we are showing the authorities at the site and nobody moves and the camera just slowly pans, shows us the situation. Well, even though it goes completely against the logic of the first movie, well, we are talking about uh, Rob Zombie's movie anyway, I would go with the beating of the kid in the beginning parts because it's memorable and well executed. It works in a different way than Carpenter has done. Yeah, Carpenter never beat any kids. What scene do you think when you think of this movie? I guess it's one of the early scenes at Smith's Crawl when Loomis is sitting at the table with Michael trying to connect. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's the aforementioned killing of the kid. Like I said previously, uh, the most ridiculous scene would be... Perhaps it's just the ridiculousness how much the ending scene drags on, in my opinion. 
Yeah, if you are picking ridiculous scenes. Uh, I guess it's Lori fingering the bagel. <laughs> or the three walking down the road and being... They are butchering the English language. Well, you know, at least at least you get your totalies here. You, you, you didn't hate them as much as I did on the first go in Carpenter's version. Well, at least there is one heartwarming totally. Yeah, there's a lot of totalies. They are all back here in Rob Jumpy's version, so enjoy them. Really? I sure as fuck did it not. I counted one totally. There, there are several totalies. They're like totally totalies. Oh. I, I, even the totalies get totalies once again. I totally missed them. That's because you were totally snoozing when all the basic and all the cerebral stuff was happening in this movie. Can't say I remember anything special about the soundtrack here. I remember, is it Nazareth performing Love Hurts, which was kind of an odd choice. Some have said that it's a ridiculous choice and it doesn't fit the movie at all. I would argue that uh, it's fine and it's maybe the love hurts kind of works after killing the whole family and especially the teenagers having making some love. So it hurts because Michael Myers is back. It hurts because there is still love in those characters at that point, especially in Michael's mom who still cares a lot about her kids. Yeah. And at the same time, she's doomed to be a stripper and a part-time prostitute just to make a living and make the ends meet and everything she suffers for and everything she makes all these sacrifices for is lost because she and no one else can make the world work, which leads into Michael finally just butchering the family. I mean, love love does hurt. It's obvious in that scene. Yep, yep. <clears throat> well, I think that's uh, totally enough about Rob Zombie's efforts. Unless you have something further to mention. Not at this point. I think, you know, if there's still something between our teeth, we can save it for the next installment, which is the sequel. Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. We can, and... Alright, well, see you in the next episode. Until then. Except shut the f-